Thank you, Rosemary. Shall we pray together? So, Lord, may my mouth speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart bring understanding that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning to awaken our hearts, expand our minds, and shape our identity. In you we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So today we come to Act 5. Act 5 in this series that we're looking at in the book of Revelation. This book that, that most Christians consider to be the most difficult to understand. And along the way we've been using this illustration of a curtain to help us try and understand a bit about the book. The idea being that the word revelation means an unveiling or a pulling back of the curtain or a raising of the curtain, we could say. The idea being that we see this book and how we look at this book through the eyes of perhaps of going to a West End play. And so this morning we come to what most scholars, certainly of the book of Revelation, consider to be the key chapter in the book. They consider it to be the central, the, the, the pivotal chapter in the whole of the book. But as we look at that, we may think, well, what happened to what was central to Acts 3 and 4 that we looked at? This scroll that had seven seals on it. And you may remember, we looked at these, this scroll in Acts 3 and Acts 4, but there's no mention of it. So where did the scroll disappear to when we then hear what we heard read this morning? So let's try and fill in a, a few gaps, if you like, as to what happened in between. So if you remember, if you were here two weeks ago at the end of chapter 7, Jesus starts to take these seals, seven of them there were, on this scroll. Remember what the scroll represents. It was God's end game plan for how he would finally destroy sin and evil. And remember John in his vision, he saw no one was worthy to take these seals off the scroll until he sees Jesus in heaven. He hears Jesus first being described as the Lion of Judah, but when he sees Jesus, he sees Jesus as the Lamb that was slain. In other words, bearing his marks of crucifixion. For out of Jesus' greatest defeat came his greatest victory. That's why he's the only one worthy to open up the scroll and reveal the purposes of God, because at the cross he defeated sin and death. And so we saw last time, six of these seven seals were taken off. Remember, as the seals are taking off, they're not revealing the message of the scroll. Rather, they're a series of judgments unleashed by God upon sinful humanity. And then we come to the start of chapter 8. And the seventh seal is taken off the scroll. And it's met just by silence in heaven. Oh. And then after the silence has stopped, we hear of seven trumpets being announced. Of seven trumpets being blown by angels and there's a further seven series of judgments that come 
from God. And that goes on through chapter 8, chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10 as well. And just like we saw with the seals, if you like, between the sixth and the seventh one, there's a gap. So there's a gap between the sixth and the seventh trumpet being blown. And in that gap between the sixth and the seventh trumpet being blown, John is told to start to read the contents of the scroll. And here's where you might need a bit of Old Testament knowledge. Here's why we did Ezekiel before Revelation, because you may remember in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 2 and 3, he saw this vision of a scroll. And he was told by God to read the contents of the scroll, but before he read the contents of the scroll, he was told to eat the scroll. And he was told that as he ate the scroll, it would taste like sweet like honey in his mouth, but then it would be bitter in his stomach. You know, you have this lovely food and then you suffer food poisoning afterwards. That sort of idea. And so he has this sort of idea and John is told the same. He said, eat the scroll and it'll be sweet as honey to you, but it'll be bitter to you in the stomach. And so he eats the scroll. And it's the idea that as he eats the scroll, he's then ready to proclaim God's message from the scroll. And that's what happens at the beginning of chapter 11. He starts to proclaim the contents of this scroll. And it's a, just like he ate it and it was sweet and then bitter in his stomach. Well, this message is a, is a bittersweet message. Because it's a message that describes two witnesses being martyred. But actually, it was through their martyrdom, that's the bitter bit, that led to the conversion of so many more people. And quite literally, we could, we could see this played out when we think about the early church. It was literally the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. The reason the church changed the world in the first, second, and third centuries was that they were literally martyred, so many of them. Or they were faithful unto death. They wouldn't stop proclaiming Jesus as Lord changed the world. And that comes about in the end of chapter 11 and it brings us to chapter 12. So as we open the curtain in Act 5, we come to what most scholars, like I've said, consider to be the theological heart of the book. And we read, don't we, of this, this story. This story that we heard read was split into three parts. And the idea behind the story is that the story gets explained as it goes on. So in other words, the second part of the story explains the first part of the story. The third part of the story explains the second part of the story. And it's a story that, that goes on through chapters 12 through chapters 15. It's kind of like this, this war going on, this messianic war. We meet these five characters, don't we, that we, that we heard read this morning. Remember them? This woman screaming about to give birth. This great red dragon. This messianic child. This idea of Michael as an archangel. And the loud voices and we get left wondering, well, 
What's it all about? What does it, what does it all mean? Where's this, where's this vision? He, he kind of like, you kind of feel like, don't you, when, you, when you're looking at it, if, if you were with us with Ezekiel, you kind of feel like he's been on some of Ezekiel's tablets, don't we? When, we? when we look at some of these signs and we just think, well, what's he mean? And the story, the first part of the story, doesn't it? It, it takes us, doesn't it? He just sees this great sign in the sky as he describes it. That's what a portent means. It means a great, great sign of a woman. A woman with a, with a crown on her head. A woman clearly displaying splendor, but she's also pregnant and about to give birth, and she's screaming. And then John sees this other sign of this great red dragon. Seven heads, each with a crown and, and ten horns. And the, and the tail of the dragon drags and throws a third of the stars from heaven to earth. And then there's this standoff, isn't there, between the two. Imagine you're the, well, which side do you want to be? Do you want to be the pregnant woman giving birth or do you want to be the great dragon? Do you want to suffer a bit now or suffer a bit later? Take your choice. The woman, right, you're the dragon. And literally, basically, sorry, I don't mean it literally, but literally that's what happens. You've got the dragon and the woman and they're at a standoff. And this woman's about to give birth to this messianic child and this dragon is waiting to pounce and devour the child. But before the dragon can devour the child, we read that the child is snatched away to heaven. While the woman goes into the wilderness to a place prepared by God to be nourished. If you like, it's a place of spiritual refuge, but like any wilderness place, either physical or metaphorically, it's also this place as well of um, discipline and testing to withstand the attacks of the dragon. And so we get left wondering, well, what does it still all mean? Who are all these, who are all these characters and what does it all mean? And so I, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know what? Anyone bought their Christmas cards? Yeah. You've written them. There we go. You know, it's my job this year to sort out the Christmas cards. George has done it for 26 years, and this year it's my job, so heaven help you when you get a Christmas card and basically you can't read my writing, but quite literally, that's what I think it is. I think what we hear is the Christmas story. You wouldn't get this preached on Christmas Day, would you? Or even on Christmas Eve. But this is the Christmas story, if you imagine it, from the heavenly perspective. Here's why, here's why I think that. It brings new meaning, doesn't it, to all those Christmas carols. Remember my favorite Christmas carol? You could change the lyrics. Hark the herald angels sing. A dragon wants to eat the king. You know? Just imagine if we sang that this Christmas. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Everyone would be looking at us thinking, where did you get that from? Or Silent Night. Violent night, hell and heaven meet to fight. Just imagine that idea. 
But that's what Christmas is all about from, 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 from God and an evil perspective. It's not about the birth of a child so much. It's about an invasion. The decisive advance and the struggle against good and evil. That's why they see this chapter as the central chapter in the book because what's been hinted at before now becomes central. This war between good and evil that's raged right the way from the beginning of time and will go on until the final end. But Christmas marked the beginning of the end. That's why if you ever read any Hebrew literature, the beginning might be good and the end might be good, but the key point is in the middle. And that's why we, we have it here. And so we hear described, don't we? Well, we get told who the dragon is, don't we, in verse 9. We get told the dragon is the Satan. He's, de he's the devil. He's the accuser, the, the, the deceiver. We'll look at that a bit in a moment. Then we get told that the child is messianic. It's a reference from Psalm 2, verse 9. The idea of Jesus coming and ruling with a rod of iron. Going back, if you're wondering, how did he get the vision of the dragon? It's in Daniel 7. When Daniel saw a vision of a dragon. But this time of four beasts, Daniel saw, this time in John's vision, he combines all the heads and all the horns. Remember what I said, understand Revelation, understand the Old Testament. And then we read, well, Who's the screaming woman at giving birth? Does that mean it's Mary? And some, some think that perhaps best, though it's best summed up by Isaiah. So much talking about the faithful Israelites staying faithful to God and imagining them as a woman about to give birth amidst the suffering that they faced. Perhaps now taken as a message of the whole people of God throughout all the generations. And that, if you like, is in part one. And then we come quite literally to this war in heaven, don't we? We see it described, Michael and his angels, and that's significant. It's not an equal battle. God's not fighting the devil. It's Michael and his archangels fighting the devil and we read how the Michael and his archangel is victorious. We read how the devil and the demons, they're flung to the earth and they're banished from heaven. And as we, we think of that, some of us are maybe thinking, well, this might have some sort of meaning going back to the whole idea of how the origins of Satan as an angel of light as he, as he fell from heaven. And we could read that there. For me, the better description is this is actually the Easter story. Ever wonder what was going on in heaven when Jesus died on the cross? When Jesus died on the cross and then he rose from the dead, quite literally destroying sin and evil? or defeating sin and evil before he comes again to destroy it. That's what's going on here. Basically, we have this situation of the Easter story. 
and the Christmas story coming together and being played out in a cosmic perspective in this vision. And then it moves into part three, doesn't it? And in part three, we have this situation of the loud voices. The loud voices bringing prayers. Remember how in Revelation, so much if you want to understand it, listen to what's so. You know, like if you ever go and see Handel's Messiah and, it's, and he's there and he's taking bits of the Bible, isn't he? And he's putting it in song, trying to explain it. In the same way, the book of Revelation is a bit like that because how much of our theology do we take from songs? That the, that the song is explaining what goes on next or what's gone before. And we read, don't we, in verse 11, verse 10, they say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. In other words, they're singing that salvation has come through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But did you notice how when it was read, the victory has two parts, but they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. In other words, the primary cause of salvation is always Jesus' death on the cross. That through accepting him as, a Lord, as our Lord and Savior, we receive forgiveness of sins. But there's a part. Go back to the scroll, the message of the scroll. There's a part for, for each one of his faithful witnesses throughout the generations to play. That just as Jesus was the faithful witness, was prepared to die, so that act of being a faithful witness, still for him today, applies to all of his believers, that somehow, by staying faithful to him, by the word of our testimony, to the difference Jesus has made to our lives, that we play a part in the salvation of the world. It's why, if you like, in, you're in heaven now, you can rejoice, but it's why he says at the end, for those who either know Jesus or don't know Jesus, there's still this time where there's more war to withstand. But we read because he knows that his time is short. And so as we close the curtain on Act 5, we kind of get left wondering if we're in this stage of, of like the not yet, of the now and the not yet, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for, for each one of us today as we, as we walk out of here? What does it mean? And so as I was looking at this story I, and John's vision, I thought of three things. Here's three things to take. Firstly, 
No, the devil is real. He's not some imaginary friend, basically. He's real. Know how he's described here as the, the adversary, the accuser. Think of him, if you like, as the chief counsel of the prosecution. Loving to come and accuse Christians. When you do something, you know, you know, someone at our Bible study, we were, last Tuesday, we were talking about this, and, um, and they said, said well, someone said, oh, that's not a very Christian thing to do. And you know what they said? They gave me a great response. They said, how would you know? I thought that was really good, basically. Maybe it just appealed to my sense of humor. But, you know, just love to accuse. Or the, or the, the Greek word is devil, the slanderer love to slander you, or the, the deceiver, the father of lies, if you like, know that he is real. He is not an imaginary friend. And remember that what Jesus says, there's no condemnation for those who've been shared by the blood of the Lamb, because he loves to condemn. Know that he's real. Know everything about him. As it's described in this book, you know, I've, I've always found we never need to go anywhere else but look to find out about the devil in this book. We don't need to go searching anywhere or anything like that. Why? Because the devil has no new tricks. They're all in here. He doesn't need any new tricks because they work very well, the old ones, don't they? Know that he's real. Know as well how he's described in this book. Know where you're weak to his advances. Know where you're vulnerable. Because he knows. But know that he is a defeated enemy. As we read in chapter 20 with his final destruction. But beware the wounded animal. Never go searching for him. Never go dancing to his tune because you... Never go dancing with him because you only dance to his tune. No, he's real. But secondly, remember and resist by remembering who you are in Christ. That you are his child, loved by him. And that's where the great power of praise and worship comes in because he can't stand it. You know, you go about, you don't need to be, you can by yourself and you can praise and worship to God and he can't stand it. And remind yourself who you are in Christ. No, he's real. Remember who you are in Christ and here's the third one. As we hear from these loud voices, just be faithful to him. Just play your part. Play your part, if you like, telling of the difference that he's made to your life, to the word of your testimony. Play your part of that the salvation has come. And remember this, that even when you kind of feel like, oh, I'm making no progress, or even when you, you feel like it can't get any worse than this, and even when you feel like you're just throwing in the towel, remember that suffering for him as a faithful witness, is never a sign of failure. It's a sign of 
victory. Remember, he's real. Remember who you are in Christ as his child. And just walk being faithful to him. Shall we pray? Gracious God, as we, we read of these, this great vision that John had, sometimes it can feel like it's a million miles away. Yet it has so much relevance to what happens in the day-to-day -day of our lives. And so, Lord, where we need to be reminded that the devil is real. So Lord, may we remember that. And may we not give him in any of our lives whatsoever that foothold that he would love to take advantage of. And we know those areas there where, where we're weak to his advances. And so, Lord, we remember who we are in you. That not only as we come to know you as our Lord and Savior, do you come and live in us, but also we're reminded of who we are in you. That in Christ there is no condemnation. So we never go around feeling condemned but we're reminded that we're loved by you and then help us dear Lord this week to just play our part whether life's wonderful at the moment or whether it's difficult to play a part just taking that opportunity that we will have to say about the difference that we've made in our lives. Or when that opportunity we might not feel comes, just by living out as the silent witness that others see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.